This morning we'll be hearing from Isaiah chapter 44 verses 1 through 5. So if you're following along in your Bible, that's where to turn, Isaiah 44, 1 to 5. And uh, three announcements. One of them is regarding children. This is the one Sunday of the month that we have for kids up through elementary school age. We have a time of teaching and singing for them. So uh, kids and those who are serving among the kids, now would be the time to go. And... uh, those of you parents who'd prefer to keep your kids here, they're certainly welcome to be here as well. want to make this uh, an opportunity for you who desire. Two other announcements that I failed to mention earlier, both having to do with things going on just here this morning. One is that we have some, uh, some, some groceries that have been uh, procured. Basically, if there's anything that you want to grab, they'll be available to grab afterward. Um, and then also the Library of Light. So once a month we have this library of books really edifying mostly biographies and other works regarding church history uh, that we hope and pray would stimulate your soul in your walk with Christ, giving us examples of those who have walked with him in the past and uh, the triumphs of God's grace in past generations. So that's over there. Uh, I invite you to go take a look at what's there at the Library of Light. I'm going to read our text, pray for God's blessing to start our time. Isaiah 44, 1 to 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. O our God, you wrote these words for us. And it's our earnest desire this morning that your spirit would open up our ears to hear what you have to say to us, your church. We pray for hearts that are soft before you, not hard. We pray for minds that are active and engaged and alert. I pray for myself, for your help to preach your word with clarity, with fidelity, with boldness, with wisdom and love, and with conviction. And Lord, all the things that you know, you know each of our souls so intimately and well. You see everything going on. You know what our week looked like. You know what we're wrestling with, what we're rejoicing over. You know our strengths, our weaknesses. You know our spiritual state, inside and out. And so we invite you to shepherd our souls in your green pastures of your word. To give comfort where it's needed. To give conviction where it's needed. To bring new life where it doesn't exist. And to sustain us in our faith. Please, Conform us all to the likeness of your Son and be glorified in our midst through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can what was once cursed be blessed again? Can what was once dead be brought back to life? Those of you who have sometimes seen brown patches on your lawn certainly hope the answer is yes. Perhaps this morning you feel spiritually weary and lifeless. Or perhaps you haven't given much thought at all to your spiritual state. But you do feel a a deep sense that something is wrong 
with you. Something is deeply out of place with you. Perhaps you feel so empty and barren in yourself that the thought of rendering loving service to others just seems light years away from being possible. Perhaps you're a Christian, but the Christian life has begun to feel stagnant and dull. Why seek the Lord in worship? Why gather with His church? Why obey Him? Even if you continue doing these outward things, you may struggle to care. The whole endeavor feels dead and lifeless. I'd venture to say that we all feel at least some of these things some of the time. Maybe this morning you're very acutely feeling some of these things. And this morning God has an answer for us. He wants us to know the depth of life and vitality that He has opened up for us in Jesus. Uh, The past few weeks, if you've been with us as we've walked through this part of Isaiah, we've seen God saying to Israel in 43, chapter 43, verses 8 to 13, telling them, you are my witnesses. And then in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 43, he said, I promise I'll deliver you from Babylon. And then last week's text, verses 22 to 28, he clarified that this deliverance from the exile in Babylon they're about to face, this deliverance is not because of anything they deserve. Because of their persistent sin, they don't deserve it. It's going to be because of his forgiveness. And now, flowing from that concept of the forgiveness that he has just promised them, he's going to unload regarding the good he's going to do to them in his deliverance. And here it is in a nutshell. Here it is in brief. The Holy Spirit is God's fount of every blessing for the spiritually lifeless. The Holy Spirit is God's fount of every blessing for the spiritually lifeless. And we're going to move through our text and note five features of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. Five features of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. So first, let's look in the first two verses at the basis of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. The basis of the Lord's gift. He says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So again, the very last thing we heard, verses 22 to 28, God told Israel a strange combination of things. On the one hand, he made this devastating argument for their sinfulness, especially regarding how their worship was tainted by a lack of reverence and trust toward God. They weren't calling on him and they were not revering him. They were bored with him, tired of him. And then in verse 28, he promised them as a result to devote them to cursing and reviling, which would be the coming exile to Babylon. He said, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But right in the middle of that text, verse 25, he proclaimed something very interesting. He said, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. He proclaimed that he would forgive their sins and forget them for his own namesake. Not because they deserved it. That's very clear in the context. They don't deserve it. But because of the riches of his mercy. 
So now moving into this section we're on today, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 44, he more fully explains how he's going to treat his sinful people. What will his forgiveness lead to? And verse 1 begins with a strong but now. And again, if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've seen God kind of swinging back and forth in this section between sin and grace. Sin and grace. And once again, we have this strong pivot. They will receive cursing and reviling, but God has something else for them. But now. Because God will forgive them, verse 25, the curse will not be the last word. And really, if we look at these these first two verses, it's really just a long and detailed way of saying, listen up, you don't have to be afraid of this curse. I mean, verse 1 Essentially, verse 1 is, listen, and verse 2 is, don't be afraid. Okay, But, but he, he has those two commands, and he wraps them up in, in, in all this detail. What it is, is his descriptions of himself and of them in relation to each other. Okay, So it's this super long, detailed description, addressing of them and, and regarding who he is. See, in both the, the beginning of, uh, in verse 1 and the end of verse 2, he affirms, that they are even still His chosen servants. He repeats that twice. My servant, the one I've chosen. And then in the middle, He describes Himself as their maker, the one who formed them like an infant in His mother's womb. And because of that long history of being their God, that long intimate knowledge of them, this committed relationship He has with them, it's on that basis that He says in the middle of verse 2, and I will help you. It's really, even the grammar is even more set out than we have here. It's like in parentheses. I formed you. I made you in your mother's womb. Parentheses. I will help you. Do you see the implication of how long I've been your God? I will still help you. His commitment to his people transcends their sin. And it transcends the consequences of their sin. They failed the Sinai covenant. But there is something deeper underneath that catches them. It's his promises to Abraham that he will be their God. But there is some irony here in the way he addresses them. You may have caught this strange title he gives them in verse 2, Jeshurun. What is that? Well, it's an intimate nickname that he has given them in the past. It shows up in a few places in Deuteronomy. Seems like a sort of affectionate name for them. And the meaning probably comes from the Hebrew word meaning upright or righteous. So probably what he's saying here is, fear not, oh, my upright people, my righteous people. Of course, the irony is thick. If you were with us last week, you heard in detail how he excoriates them for their sinfulness. If they're upright, then upright doesn't mean anything at all. What is God saying here? Well, it's like, the tongue-in-cheek way that we might call a really huge guy tiny. It's not because of their uprightness that he's still their God. It's not because of their uprightness that they're going to receive the blessings that he's already proclaimed, forgiveness of sin, and he's about to proclaim here in this text. It is because of his grace. Just like he said in verse 25, for my sake, I wipe away your sins. So this ironic title, Jeshurun, is supposed to drive this home. God's blessings will continue to pour out to them purely from his own depths of love, his commitment, and his forgiveness, and not from their own merit. 
So this tongue-in-cheek, O righteous ones, don't be afraid. As we're about to see in verse 3, the blessing he proclaims in this text is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And forgiveness of sins that we heard about back again last week in verse 25, and the Holy Spirit are complementary gifts. There would be no spirit given if there were no forgiveness of sins. You see, forgiveness of sin solves our legal problem with God. Because sin makes us unjust at the bar of God's righteousness. We fail His law. We are lawbreakers. We need a status change. We need a divine declaration of not guilty, or even better, righteous. Or, in other words, Jeshurun. And as we heard last week, the cross of Christ is the basis for the payment of our unrighteous debt. And therefore, the cross of Christ is the basis for God counting us righteous by faith in Jesus. But then with that legal problem settled, the Spirit comes to solve the problem of what we're actually like. What we actually are. Sin's problem is not just that it makes us guilty, but that it makes us bad. And God has dealt with this first problem in proclaiming forgiveness. So now he's going after the second problem. We need forgiveness and renovation. Forgiveness cleans up the crimson stain of sin, but the spirit stitches up the wound and begins healing. Commentator Matthew Henry writes, God had said, I am he that blotteth out thy transgression, which is the only thing that creates this distance between them, between the people and God. And when it is taken away, the streams of mercy run again in their former channel. When that, bridge is, when that gap is bridged by forgiveness of sin, then God's mercies pour out. And that's what this text is about. Even at this early point, we've just barely begun looking at our text. I want us all to stop for a moment and reflect on what God is doing here. And saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. To consider how prodigal, how overflowing, even in a sense illogically liberal, his love is. How does he respond to the deep unworthiness and pollution of our sin? By pulling back? By creating distance? He responds by sharing more of himself. He says, you're so unworthy... I will draw even nearer to you and give even more of myself to you. That's what it is for God to give His Spirit, as we'll see in verse 3. But before we get there, we need to get an even better handle on the problem, the problem that they're facing. So the second feature we'll see of the Lord's gift of His Spirit is the need. The need of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. The need of the Lord's gift of of his spirit. This is the beginning of verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. So here he's moving into the declaration of what he's going to do. The first half of verse 3 describes it in metaphor, this word picture of pouring water on dry ground. And the second half of the verse, he'll describe it more directly. But I want to draw your attention at this point to the way God describes their current state. It is thirsty land and dry ground. It's a picture of utter desolation and lifelessness. Man's state before the intervention of grace is a barren spiritual wasteland. Ephesians 2 tells us that grace found us dead in our trespasses and sins. 
This is Israel's spiritual condition that leads to their exile and cursing. We heard about false worship last week in chapter 43, verses 22 to 24. It looked like life. There was activity. There was outward action, but it was dead inside. It was like astroturf. It was green, but there was no life there. We all know the experience of spiritual lifelessness. For those of us who already trust in Jesus, this was our past, and we still feel its remaining traces in our lives. For those of you who don't know Christ, this is your state right now. It means spiritual poverty. It means spiritual dullness. It means we have no savor for God or for heaven or for His righteous ways. You may be a hypocrite, someone who's trying to look morally upright on the outside, but it's not driven by love for your Creator. Again, it's green, but it's not living uh, grass. It's astroturf. Or you may just be going all out in pursuit of indulging your desires. You're unstable. Your life isn't built on anything solid or real. You don't really know what's true. You're ever wandering, ever dabbling, ever unsettled, ever discontent. You find yourself unable to truly love others, to serve them without any desire for selfish gain. You don't know true peace. You don't know hope. You know fleeting fits of joy, but you're always either riding high or low just based on your circumstances. Your happiness has no ballast, no permanence. You have no self-mastery. You can't govern your emotions. If this is you, take heart. There is hope for lifeless and thirsty ground. What is God's solution to this barren wasteland of our sin? The answer is it's God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, whom the the 4th century Nicene Creed calls the Lord, the giver of life. That's how the Spirit is described there. The Lord, the giver of life. He is life for the lifeless. So this brings us to the third feature of the Lord's gift, the blessing of the Lord's gift of his Spirit. The blessing of of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. This is the second half of verse 3. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And notice the way this Hebrew poetry works. There are these parallels and you see the way that my Spirit is paralleled with my blessing in those two lines. Meaning that these are essentially two ways of saying the same thing. God's solution for their cursed state of sin where the last chapter left off is to bless First of all, he says, I will curse you. But then his word beyond that is, I will bless you. And I'll bless you specifically by giving you my spirit. He has no greater blessing to give Israel's barren and sinful lives than to pour out his own spirit on them. It's like he's saying, I'm going I'm to pull out my secret weapon. This is the most potent blessing I can give you. The spirit converts hearts that are dead in sin. And makes them alive to God. The Spirit also renews and revives those who are alive but struggling. Which is to say there's both an initial and an ongoing work of renewal that he performs in the souls of God's people. Already in this book, Isaiah has mentioned the Holy Spirit in a few different ways. We've seen the Spirit filling and empowering the Messianic servant, who is Christ... 
uh, producing an abundance of righteousness and wisdom in this servant's ministry. So way back in chapter 11, in verses 2 and 3, he says, speaking of this Messiah, the, the, the shoot from the root of Jesse, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This overflowing bounty of wisdom is attributed to the Spirit. Then in chapter 42, verse 1, we saw this more recently regarding the servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The servant will accomplish God's purpose for him because he's endowed with the Spirit of the Lord. In another place, Isaiah has spoken of the Spirit as the agent of God's new creation work to come. You especially see this in Isaiah 32, 15 and and the verses following. He uses the same metaphor, talking about pouring out the Spirit and renewing the land, renewing the earth. The results of this outpouring of the Spirit are righteousness and justice and peace and quietness and security and rest. As one scholar says, the Spirit is recreating a paradise that was once lost. This is how God restores Eden. And here in our text, he's doing a very similar thing. He's bringing spiritual life and renewal to God's people. He's not just the servant who has the Spirit, but through the work of the servant, all the people will get the Spirit. All the people will get these renewing streams of grace and blessing from God. And I would encourage us all, this is one of those takeaways from this sermon, just spend some time this week meditating long and carefully on the image of the Holy Spirit as water on dry ground. I'm really glad to be preaching this in in July because you can feel this. Israel has a climate like ours in California, so we really get this. We're in triple-digit season. We all know how parched the land can get. If you're responsible for irrigating any lawns or any area of earth, you know what it looks like when the sprinklers aren't working. We moved into a new home in January and uh, we're new homeowners, so responsible for making sure the sprinklers are working. And as the season heated up, I realized the sprinklers were not running as long as I thought they were. I didn't understand the program the way I thought I did. And so how did I know? Brown patches on the lawn, especially in a spot where I needed a new sprinkler head. It's amazing how the lawn tells the story of how it's being irrigated. It's astounding how quickly the land responds to inadequate irrigation. But when the right adjustments are made, again, this beautiful emerald green starts coming back, and we're getting that. But in places that get no irrigation at all, around these parts, around this time, it's really ugly. It's scorched earth. If you ever drive by Auburn Boulevard, just... uh, East of Watt Avenue, you see Del Paso Park. And there is a baseball field that look, it looks like post-apocalyptic. It hasn't seen water in months. It's really sad. The point of all this is that we can feel and appreciate the value of this metaphor. Streams of water on dry land. This is the Holy Spirit to us. This is the Spirit of God on our hearts. And the New Testament picks up this prophetic image of the Spirit as a refreshing torrent of water. In John 7, starting in verse 37, Jesus cries out to the crowd. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Notice it's not just that the, the rivers come in. They come out of his heart. Now this, John explains to us. Now this, he said about the Spirit. It's amazing. Jesus says, as it is written, and he's alluding to prophetic texts like this. Whoever believes in me, his heart will become a, a fountain of living water. God's abundance of life-giving refreshment for his people. And Jesus fulfilled the promise here in verse 3 at Pentecost when he poured out his spirit on the church, when he had gone to the cross to pay for our sins, he had been raised to new life, and he was ascended into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, he poured out his spirit on the church, whom he called the promise of the Father, there in Acts 1 4. He must have, when he said the, the Father promised the Spirit, he must have been thinking of Old Testament prophetic texts like ours. So coming back home to Isaiah 44.3, the point of this water metaphor and the point of paralleling the Spirit with the blessing of God is that all of God's blessings in salvation come in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have no blessing from God that isn't mediated through His Spirit. Now Christ the Son is the one who accomplished redemption for us. The redemption that was purposed by the Father. He's the one that went to the cross. But the Spirit is the one who brings it home. The Spirit is the one who makes it ours. As one theologian has noted, He's both the gift and the giver of all of God's blessings. It's not through keeping the law that God's people would inherit the promises that He made to them. The blessings He promised to Abraham's offspring. It's not through law keeping. It's through the refreshing, recreating, renewing work of His Holy Spirit. The good news if you're a Christian is that every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit. And to have the Holy Spirit is to have all of God's blessings that are available in the present age and to await even more in the age to come. And a few moments ago in our scripture reading, we read the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, which I believe is yet another picture of this biblical motif of the Spirit as streams of water. And you may have caught in verse 1, if... God is a reference to the Father and the Lamb is a reference to the Son, Jesus. What flows from them to water the new heavens and the new earth with life and blessing? I believe it's again the Spirit giving us the whole Trinity there in Revelation 22.1. The river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And what are the effects of this stream? It's a restored Eden. The the new tree of life is there whose whose leaves bring healing for the nations. The result is a multitude of servants who worship God and the Lamb, who live forever rejoicing in His everlasting noonday glory. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Life where death reigned. God Himself coming to indwell us and to make us new. It's revival for ground once parched and tangled with only thorny thistles. This is how richly God has blessed us, church, by giving us His Spirit. What could we possibly desire in this world, which even if we had it to our fullest desire, our fully granted desires for anything in this world, what could bless and satisfy us like God in our midst, the Spirit of life indwelling us? What could be more desirable than to receive this supply of abundant streams? 
So the takeaway from this point is let's treasure the Spirit of God. Let's welcome His effects. Let's not quench Him with spiritual neglect. Let's not grieve Him with our sin. Whatever He prompts you to do that's in accordance with the Scriptures, we always test it by the Scriptures. Obey. Whether to pray, to evangelize, to reconcile, to pour out love richly on others. How could we ever think of resisting the motions of such a benevolent friend? It would be like turning off the sprinklers in 104 degree weather. Is that what we're going to have today? 102? So having seen what a blessing God promises in sending His Spirit, we're going to focus a little bit more now in verse 4 on what the Spirit will do in His people. So the fourth feature of the Lord's gift of His Spirit in verse 4 is the effect of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. The effect of of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. He says, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This is the effect of the Spirit in more kind of general and metaphorical terms. And then verse 5 will concretely kind of zero in on one specific outcome. But in verse 4, the applied water does what water does. It supports the growth of vegetation. Israel's descendants are said to spring up like willows by flowing streams. And again, we have the advantage of living in California. It doesn't take much of a stretch for us to see what God is telling us with this word picture. If you ever spend time in rural areas outside the city, especially in kind of the more arid parts of California, which is most of the state, you know how to spot a stream from a long way off. It's where the trees are. You scan the horizon and you see this dark green thread running along uh, ahead of you. How do you know that's the stream? What are you looking at? It's the thick and tall, towering trees growing along the banks. What we, back in, in my former life, used to call riparian vegetation. The, 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 the vegetation that grows right there on the stream bank. And around here, when there's water in the streams, can't take that for granted, trees do very well along stream banks. Especially compared to the surrounding landscapes when you're not near a stream. Why is that? Well, they have uniquely good access to a steady supply of shallow groundwater right there next to the stream. To be a tree on the riverbank is to have a good life. You're in prime territory. You're a willow growing on the riverbank. You're stable. You have moisture, a plenty. It will always be there for you. You're healthy. You're able to keep on growing. You're flourishing. Stable, healthy, growing, thriving. So it is with us who are in Christ. Everyone on whom God has poured out His Spirit. This is what He means to do in us. This is what He's able to do in us. Everything that was missing and wrong, when we discussed the lifelessness of what it is to be outside of Christ, all of those problems are reversed with the Holy Spirit. We have, in, through the Holy Spirit, we have a natural affection for God. We have a desire for heaven. We have a longing to follow His righteous commands, even though we stumble. We don't do it anywhere near perfectly, but we want to. We have the law written on our hearts. We have stability because we know what's true. We know that Jesus has paid for our sins and raised us to new life. We know that the Father loves us and calls us His sons and daughters. We know we have an eternity in His presence to give us hope. And like a fruit-bearing tree, we extend ourselves and we expend our resources to nourish others. 
We can produce love and peace and patience and faithfulness and self-control and all sorts of other virtues the Bible talks about that benefit others. Like the servant, we can delight in fearing the Lord, which gives great wisdom and discernment. Like the servant also, we can be just and righteous and we can fulfill God's purposes for us. And like the servant, we can be gentle with bruised reeds. All this is because of the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Christian, do you want God to work further renewal in your life? In your church, our church, in our city, in Northern California, in our country, pray for new outpourings of the Spirit. Pray for this. Now we should be clear, the Holy Spirit does not come and go from Christians. This is wonderful news. He came in at the beginning, giving us new life, opening our eyes so we could even believe in Jesus in the first place, and He's here to stay. But He is a person, not a machine. And His effects wax and wane according to both His sovereign pleasure... And according to our diligent use of the means he's given us, attending to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship with one another in truth and love. So every realm in which you desire to see death turning into life, every realm where you grieve over decay and you want to see renewal, pray for the spirit and pray for God's renewal of life. If you've been watching our newsletter videos that I'm putting out every week, bless you. (laughs) I'm amazed anyone watches those. But this summer, you've heard me talking through this book, Pentecostal Outpourings, uh, which doesn't have to do with Pentecostalism at all. It's it's an old term. What it's about is uh, revival in the Reformed tradition. It's a documentation of revivals that have happened in history. And one theme that has come up over and over again is that revival is not engineered by clever men with clever methods. Many have tried. It's not the same. Fresh streams of spiritual life flowing from heaven come to the lost to give them new life and come to renew the church when God sovereignly chooses to bless the ordinary means of grace. He sovereignly chooses to extraordinarily bless the ministry of the word and prayer, the Lord's Supper fellowship. So when we plead to the Lord to send His Spirit in revival, we are not trying to innovate new methods to coerce Him to come. We're not asking for fireworks. We're not asking for enthusiasm and hype. We're not asking for news headlines. We're asking for broken hearts over sin. We're asking for repentance. We're asking for solid willows to spring up along the riverbank. We're asking for maturity, for love, for wisdom, righteousness to flourish and then to redound to God's eternal praise in our midst. We're asking for more faith in Jesus and more likeness to Jesus. So amid all these life-giving activities the Spirit works in us that are all alluded to and I believe implied in verse 4 in this picture of growth. In verse 5, God will narrow down on this one, bringing us in verse 5 to the fifth and last feature of God's gift of His Spirit, the marks, the marks of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. The marks of the Lord's gift of His Spirit. He says in verse 5, This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. 
So in a variety of different ways, this verse is saying that when God pours out His Spirit on His people, they will gladly claim to belong to Him. And they'll gladly claim the name of Israel. Now where it says He he will write on His hand the Lord's, the Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous. It literally says He will write hand. And so we have to supply, does that mean by hand or on hand? Like by His hand or on His hand? I agree with those who side with probably by hand is a little bit more of a natural reading uh, to say he will write with his hand, I am the Lord's. Probably picturing someone kind of registering his name on a list somewhere, signing up, I'm with the Lord, I belong to him. So it's not necessarily talking about like a tattoo. But what does it mean to call ourselves the Lord's? Or again, this is his covenant name, Yahweh. Whenever you see the Lord in uppercase letters, it means that he has all of us. It means that we're glad to give ourselves to him. He is our all. As someone has written, it means saying, quote, He has an incontestable right to rule me. And I submit to him, to all his commands, to all his disposal. I am and will be only his, his forever, will be for his interests, will be for his praise. Living and dying, I will be his. End quote. Now, without the Holy Spirit, man has no ability to want this. Nobody wants this outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit. No one can gladly bow his knee to God's lordship, or especially as the New Testament specifies Christ's lordship, if they're in that sinful and barren, lifeless state under the reign of sin. But when Christ sends the promise of his Father, and when the Spirit comes to inhabit us, we come to treasure God's all-consuming rule over our lives. And we say more of him, more of him. And we say, let him have more of me, ever more of me. Now, what about calling themselves by the name of Israel? Well, remember in the last verse of chapter 43, verse 28, he looked ahead at his people receiving cursing and reviling from the nations because of their exile. It would not be a good time to be an Israelite in terms of reputation. People are cursing them. But now he turns it around and he says that they'll proudly wear their identity among God's people as a privilege, as like a badge. They'll be like the high school jock wearing his letterman jacket. Sorry if you wore a letterman jacket. (laughs) To prove that they belong among the the elite rarefied air of the team. It's a point of honor and dignity. Now for those who are a part of ethnic Israel, when... The Spirit comes at Pentecost. This means what one writer says, formal Israelites becoming true Israelites. I think that's well said. Formal Israelites, those we could say, Israel by flesh, by birth, becoming Israel in spirit and in truth. That all changes when the Spirit comes. In view of the lowest state of their exile, they may have, it's very easy to imagine that they would be ashamed to call themselves Israelites. And when the Spirit comes, that comes to an abrupt end. And this promise, of course, has implications also for Gentiles, non-Jewish believers, which probably is all or most of us. After all, the Gentiles received the Spirit too, soon after Pentecost, when the apostles finally started preaching to them as well. Paul writes that we, Jew and Gentile, are the true circumcision in Christ. So what God promises in verse 5 is that we will be joined to spiritual Israel. We'll be grafted into the people of God by faith in Christ. And we will all be glad to call ourselves a part of that people. 
So whether we're ethnically Jewish or not, the Spirit's renewal makes us glad to belong to God and His people. Do you count it as a blessing? Do you count it as a privilege to claim your place among the people of God? Is it a source of dignity and gratitude to you to say, I'm a member of the church of God? This is something that we can't enjoy while withdrawn on the periphery. It's only when we dive into the people of God that we can enjoy communion with God at a whole new level that we cannot enjoy when we're hanging back and just trying to do it alone. To enjoy God is inseparable from the spiritual benefit of also enjoying His people. And this is the life-giving effect of the Holy Spirit. To make us treasure God and to make us treasure His church. Do you count it a great honor to be a part of God's church? Do you cherish your inclusion in this blessed company of the redeemed? What evidence does your life give to suggest whether or not you treasure belonging to God's people. Now, one great motive to love the church is that this is where we get to love and enjoy God himself. Because in sharing his spirit, God is sharing with us his very life. How could we welcome the self-giving of God to us that brings us into fellowship with him if we don't enjoy sharing it with one another? That's the intent. That's the aim of giving us his spirit. The spirit baptizes us into one body. So those who have received the refreshing and renewing effects of the Spirit, who have been made new and are growing up like willows on the stream banks, we say, I love that I get to be the Lord's. I love that I get to own Him as my Lord. And we also say, I love that I get to be a part of His church. Friends, the Holy Spirit is God's fount of every blessing for the spiritually lifeless. There's so many more blessings we could talk about. We could talk endlessly But in view of the depth of our sin and in view of the height of the cursing that our sin deserves, what could come as better news than this gift from God? If you've heard all this today and you're outside of Christ, you've not placed your trust in Him alone for salvation, then won't you come today and and believe in Him and receive this bounty by faith? It can be all yours. You have none of this if you're outside of Christ. You could have it all today. He offers you not only forgiveness through His blood, but fellowship and nearness through His Spirit. The Lord gives His Spirit. The Spirit gives life. And this true spiritual life gives stability, beauty, and and it causes our lives to be fountains of benevolence and love toward others. And it gives us a hunger to commune with God and His people. O come, thou fount of every blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how richly you have shared yourself with us in giving your Son as our Redeemer and giving your Spirit as the life giver to bring home the redeeming work of Christ. We thank you and we bless your triune name. Father, for us who are in Christ, we pray that the effect of hearing your word this morning would be that you'd stir up in our souls a savor for the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we would welcome his effects, that we would walk in him, that through attendance to your word, your spirit would come to rule more and more of our lives, and that we would be refreshed and grateful. And we pray for those who don't know Christ, the lost, we pray that as they hear the riches that you are so willing to pour out, 
And they consider their state in the lifeless outside. Not receiving these streams of blessing where they are right now. We pray for a a righteous jealousy that they would want to know you this way. That you would draw them, that you would compel them to come to Jesus who's full of grace and truth for sinners. We pray all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.